Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined by a, a kind of sleepy Nizar al-Hassan right now, right? You, you just <laughs> flew in like a few hours ago, right? Yeah, I arrived at like 5 a.m. Jeez, where, 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 where are you coming from? Tunis. I was in Tunis for a conference. But the whole country is now like about the presidential elections that they're uh, having next week. Ooh, that sounds fun. Yeah, it's really fun. They have like 27 candidates, so it's worth worse than the U.S. And Yeah, that sounds exhausting. That's... I know, really. And like uh, all of these candidates have their numbers instead of their names as like the main thing that people vote according to, you know. <laughs> and, um, and the most popular candidate in the opinion polls is actually in jail. And he's not really a politician. Ooh. He's like a capitalist. So he, he's in jail, so they don't know what's going to happen if he like just wins the primary round or whatever. So it's all a mess and nobody's interested or happy that they're having an election. Nobody has any hope. But yeah, <laughs> it, it was an interesting uh, experience, yeah. Yeah, that sounds nuts. Uh, welcome back. And, and, and we're back, finally, after, after several weeks. It's been so long. It's been it's been way too long. So that means we've got a lot to talk about. Uh, we're we're going to go through a, a few things, just like hitting the highlights of what, what has been going on in, in Lebanon since we've been gone. But before we get into that, I, I want to issue like a mea culpa. Uh, I was wrong <laughs> about something in the last episode that we had before we went off on break. And that was about the president's powers. So the president cannot veto legislation, right? And, and also the president's signature is not necessary for laws to be passed. That part is is right, but apparently I've been misreading the Constitution for years, and <laughs> and, I, and I got something wrong that's very important, uh, and it's very important that our, our listeners know this, and that is that the president can send a bill back to parliament, and if he does this, then parliament does have to take it up. Now, they just have to pass it with an absolute majority, but... They do have to take it up. So the president can actually like sort of delay uh, implementation of laws and everything if he decides to. Now, if he decides, you know, yeah. not to send it back and he also doesn't sign it, it doesn't matter. It still becomes law. But I, I was wrong uh, on the Constitution on this. When he does send it back, that does actually sort of like gum things up. All right. So on to the news. We, we have an end to the cabinet freeze that we were talking about for weeks. The cabinet finally met on the 10th of August. So now this is like a month ago, right? Yeah. Uh, it, but this ended a 39-day freeze uh, that happened after the Moon incident where two uh, people who were traveling in the convoy of Minister of State for Refugee Affairs, Salah al-Gharib, were, uh, were killed in this sort of like gun gunfight. And so this was like a, a really, really big event or was made into like a really big thing. Like even though in the grand scheme of things, something like this probably should not stop cabinet from meeting, yeah. especially in situation like Lebanon finds itself, but it did. And so finally something happened and a deal was made and there was a big, big meeting in Babda on the 10th of, uh, uh, sorry, on the 9th of August. And by the way, there was also an economic meeting on that same day between like all the, the heads of, of everything. Berri was there and Hariri was there and Aoun was there and uh, all, all these people. So the economic side of thing is starting to get, you know, more important. So we're going to talk more about this uh, in a minute. But then they had, after the economic meeting, they had this meeting between Walid Jumblat and Talal Ishlan, the two factions, right, that were, that were fighting over this uh, incident. And they agreed on something. It seems as though Jumblat won because Erslan wanted this incident to be referred to the Judicial Council, said, I'm not going to go to any cabinet meeting unless, you know, we talk about this and it gets referred. Well, that didn't happen. And so Jumblat seems to have won on that top line, but we we don't know what the rest of the deal was. Yeah, there's definitely something that was agreed on. Like, they gave Erslan something for this. That's just how politics works here, right? I mean, everywhere, maybe. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and so what has Cabinet been up to since? Uh, well, not a whole lot. Uh, they, they've done uh, like some, I guess, crappy appointments or some appointments <laughs> that were heavily, heavily criticized. They, they appointed like half of the Constitutional Council, their half of the Constitutional Council, uh, five names. But the way it was done was ridiculous. Purely like, based on merit, no? Oh, uh, of course, of course, of <laughs> course. Uh, the, the names apparently were chosen beforehand by like a subset of the cabinet, meaning obviously it must have been like Hariri agreed with Basile uh, and maybe some other people that these would be the names. And then they presented the names and the CVs there in the cabinet session. You know, afterwards, the LF and uh, Ma'ati were, were both t spoke about this and said, like, this was not the way the process should have been. We should have seen these CVs beforehand instead of just, you know, getting there and then having to vote on these people right there w without having any idea who they were before the meeting. Which means that the LF and Miqati didn't get their proper share. Let's be honest. This is what it means. Yeah. yeah I mean, in yeah. the process, like in terms of the process, of course, we should have the CVs and everything. But when someone is left out, this is when they bring in the real process. Right, 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 right. And it, and it seems to me as well, like they, they seem to be genuinely surprised as well by the, by the names. And, and, and so who knows what went on with all of that. But a lot, a lot of people certainly weren't happy with, with the way things were conducted, which is weird because they're allies of Hariri. So why would that happen that way? Uh, also, Cabinet has been up to fixing the garbage crisis. Lebanon's perpetual garbage crisis. They, they haven't really done a whole lot. They, they have approved a plan to create like 25 sanitary landfills as well as uh, like two or three incinerators. And so this, I guess, is going to start happening at some point. But like, as of yet, the garbage crisis has not happened, despite what Fadi Jresati said, it would, like there'd be trash in the streets by September 1st. Well, they haven't really done a whole lot, but there's not trash in the streets. So this is all coming to a head very, very soon. And the Burj Hamoud landfill is uh, basically at capacity. So things do need to happen. And I'm sure we're going to be talking about this in future weeks. But as of right now, at least there's no trash in the streets of Beirut. Yeah. Uh, and, and the other thing that the cabinet has been focused on is the economy. And and this has been like the big, big story that like a lot of people, one of the two really big stories that a lot of people have been talking about since we've been off the air. And I mean, Lebanon's economy is doing really, really bad, uh, as everyone knows. Also, there's this seemingly looming financial crisis uh, that, that we're facing. And so... The politicians have started to get the word and and say, oh, well, we need to start doing something about this. And, th and that's been exacerbated by a number of things. On August 23rd, the, the country was downgraded. It's sovereign credit rating. Fitch, which is one of three main international ratings agencies, downgraded it to triple C. S&P kept the, the rating at B minus. Yeah, noting that CCC is the grade just below B minus. So Fitch downgraded us from B minus to CCC while S&P kept us at B minus. Right, right, exactly. But S&P's failure to downgrade didn't really matter because the other big three ratings agency, Moody's, had already downgraded us back in January. And the way that most financial uh, institutions operate in the world is on the rule of two thirds. If two of the ratings agencies agree on one rating, then that's your rating. And so it doesn't matter that S&P didn't downgrade. We, we are downgraded as a country. And, and this, this has effects on in, 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 in a few different ways. Let me just run through a couple of important ones. Uh, one of them just means that basically our sovereign bonds, you know, the, the, the bonds that the Lebanese state issues 
like those are riskier now. And so that means inst certain institutions maybe have different requirements. Maybe they can't hold riskier bonds or they, they can hold fewer riskier bonds. And so maybe they'll have to sell some Lebanese bonds, which means that that, that pushes the price down on those, which means Lebanon has to pay more for its debt when they're rolling those things over. Because That's, they have to increase the, the interest rate. Yeah, you have to, to offer higher uh, interest rates to attract uh, people to buy them, right? That's one thing. But then also just on the banking side, it, it becomes important because so so banks have this under sort of like the international banking regulations and everything. You have to keep something called like a, a capital adequacy ratio that's a certain a certain amount of money set aside mm. uh, just in just as sort of like as a buffer just in case. And, and the way they do this is it's calculated as a ratio of their assets uh, of their risk weighted assets. And so if you hold, if you're a, a bank and you hold like really, really, really risky assets, then you have to have more money set to the side. You have to have a, a, a more capital set to the side. Yeah. But if you have, if you're like very conservative, then you uh, and, and your assets are therefore like not very risky at all, then you have lower money. You, you have less money that you have to set to the side uh, for this capital uh, buffer. And, and so, well, Lebanese banks hold like Lebanese euro bonds, for instance, and they hold other, you know, like exposures to the government. And so this means that for the banks, their capital adequacy ratios are going to go down. It, it may mean that uh, a few of them may fall below certain requirements, uh, depending on what their like correspondent banks require for their capital adequacy and, and the risk weights that they associate with that. And regardless, even if they don't fall below that level, maybe they just have less money. They have less room for maneuver because they're closer to that 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 threshold. They have, they have to reserve more of their money, uh, put it to the side instead of using it for other things like, you know, funding the government or something, which is something that we we, we need. We rely on banks uh, to do a, a lot of. Mm -hmm. uh, and and so th this is sort of like the the top line. This is what the ratings downgrade actually does. On the ground, or a couple of things that they, that the ratings downgrade actually does. On the other side of things, though, like these ratings agencies, when they when they downgrade you, they offer these long like explanations of why they did this. And 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 Fitch was obviously not very nice. They downgraded us in in, in their explanation. They were not very nice. But S and P was also not nice at all, uh, even though they didn't downgrade us, right? Mm. Um, and I, I would highly recommend. If you are interested in this, definitely go and read these statements. They're publicly available. And even if you don't understand all of the terms and everything, if you sort of like plow through and read one or two of these, you'll start to pick up the lingo that they use and start to see, you know, what these things mean. It it it, it really is sort of eye-opening. And, and these statements really are, they, they show you just the scale of the problems that Lebanon is facing, both economically and financially. Um, and so in light of this, Lebanon's leaders met uh, last Monday to declare an economic state of emergency, whatever that means. Uh, and so they agreed on this like... It sounds this, serious, though. It, it sounds, yeah. Right? Very, Especially very when it comes from this... Yeah, I don't think, I don't think it's a, a legal state of emergency. No, no, no. Yeah, I, I don't, don't think, think so that, like the army's in charge or anything. <laughs> I hope not the bankers. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> uh, so they they agreed on like the, a number of reforms in this document that was drawn up, I think, by the uh, economy ministry. Um, it's, it's sort of like a laundry list of things, right? Uh, of of things that should be done, but within those were some like potentially true austerity measures, like changes to fuel prices, 
raising the VAT on, on luxury items. We don't know what luxury means. And, 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 a, and a number of other things. Uh, Haruri later claimed that there were no new taxes, despite what was in the document. Like, oh, we agreed on things, but not on the taxes, right? But this is what I've sort of been hearing from people. You know, like 2019, that budget was sort of a warm-up as far as austerity goes. In 2020, these things in this document are going to get put into the 2020 budget, and that's going to be sort of like the real austerity. That's when the rubber meets the road on all this stuff. And and Hariri came out uh, this past week in an interview with CNBC and even said, we've got to cut in this document, you know, our $2 billion uh, per year subsidy to, to EDL for electricity down to $1 billion a year. And if we don't reach this goal by the middle of next year, second or third quarter, we will have a shortage of electricity, which is very surprising. Which means that they will be cutting subsidies and therefore EDL would not be able to purchase the oil that it needs for electricity production. Right. right. The, the government transfers all this money to EDL. And so if EDL isn't getting this money, how is EDL going to buy the fuel? That's my understanding. And, and Hariri even went on, you know, he said, like, we're going to have demonstrations in Lebanon. I'm saying it now, but we will have it one time and that's it. Fix it. Bam. So he's, he's actually... It, it seems as though he's expecting this, you know, what's going to go on in the 2020 budget, which, by the way, it, cabinet's supposed to start discussing this week. This is going to cause a lot of people to be angry, much more so than a, a few months ago when we were discussing the 2019 budget. I mean, it's it's definitely uh, the orientation of all parties, of all major parties to go into much more severe austerity next year. Yeah. And, and just just for our listeners to understand, the big idea here is that, yeah, the government's going to enact all this austerity, but at the same time, they're going to start turning on the tap of the CEDRA funds, the Paris Four funds, like $11 billion for infrastructure projects. And that's going to sort of like balance things out. You do this at the same time and the economy should keep ticking and everything will be fine, which I think is absolute crap. And I don't understand how the fuck anyone... <laughs> like it comes to this conclusion this will actually work because like it's just mismatched first off you have to get the timing right on this yeah. <laughs> like the funds have to come in at the right moment and they have to trickle through the economy then at the right pace but see here's the thing so if you're cutting back state spending to two people who need it you know cutting things to like electricity and everything forcing people maybe to spend more on generators and stuff like that 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 is one effect how does that get offset by paying Siemens or General Electric a whole lot of money to come and build some electrical infrastructure here. How does that get offset by paying a very politically well-connected contractor a whole lot of money to build a road? Yeah, some of that money is going to be trickled through, but is all of it? Is it really going to be uh, you know, pound for pound, dollar for dollar, is it really going to have a huge economic impact? I I don't know. I, I think we're the, the people who promote this theory of like, oh, well, let's do austerity and cedra at the same time are thinking wishfully a little bit. I mean, I think the only answer to austerity is because the austerity poses a, an important question, which is if you keep doing austerity, then how are you expecting better economic growth in the future? So the the only answer, the only plausible answer is we invest in, in infrastructure because investing in more than infrastructure is beyond the allowed space in like this neoliberal paradigm that is being imposed by the World Bank. So it's just in investing in basic infrastructure through privatization and public-private partnership, whatever it's called. So 
this I think is the logic behind it. But what you're saying is is really important because where the money will be taken from and where it will be spent are two different places. And the conditions of what they're ignoring is that the conditions of ordinary Lebanese people and residents of Lebanon will deteriorate while the money being invested will only be channeled to a very narrow, very, very, very restricted kind of class or or group of people, developers like who do these infrastructure projects and the international companies involved. Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. And and this is kind of the thing I... As far as this goes, I mean, I hope it works because it seems like this is the route that we have chosen and we're, we're going down it. But, you know, I, I I look at this and and I can't help but say, come on, Lebanese politicians, you can do better than this number on the one hand. And on the other hand, come on, international community. I mean, <laughs> like the Western countries don't know that austerity might be a bad idea, especially for a country with weak social safety, uh, social security nets. Yeah. Come on, this is absolutely ridiculous and you really you should know better. But they never cared about this anyway in any country, other countries' examples, so we shouldn't expect otherwise in Lebanon. Let's be very honest, like Greece was in a very, very bad situation and no one gave a shit about the situation of ordinary Greek people and they didn't even allow them a debt resettlement back then. That made sense, so they wouldn't give us a better shot now. They yeah. care less about us, to be honest, than they care about a major country in a, in a Eurozone. True, yeah. Yeah. Uh, One more thing that I want to mention on this economic front is that, uh, and financial front, is that things just got a little bit more complicated as well. On August 29th, uh, Jamal Trust Bank, a relatively small bank here in the country, was uh, sanctioned by the U.S. Treasury for, quote unquote, brazenly enabling Hezbollah's financial activities. And this is just kind of bizarre. Treasury didn't really explain this. Uh, They just said, oh, they're working with Hezbollah. But this is one of those weird things where the U.S. keeps saying, like, we're not going after Shiites. We're not going after Shiites. That's not our goal and everything. But then they come out against this relatively small bank that provides a lot of small loans to help development in poor Shiite areas in the country. And they don't really offer anything other than, like, hand-waving Hezbollah. And, And then they also say brazen. Like, there's a brazen... What are you talking about? The U.S. State Department, USAID, didn't even seem to know about it last year. The U.S. Embassy here didn't seem to know about it last year when they partnered with this bank to do like a financial literacy and inclusion program. I think that here, I mean, Treasury, maybe they've got great evidence for this, but number one, they're not showing it. And number two, like they're way, way over the top in their rhetoric about this. Like, what are you talking about? Brazen. Yeah, and by, by the way, the phrasing that they chose, like that that Jamal Trust provides support and services to Hezbollah's Executive Council and the Martyrs Foundation, which funnels money to the families of suicide bombers. How many suicide bombers has Hezbollah had in the last 30 years? Like, yeah, you, yeah. Can, you can really count them in like on like one hand. Like the, the language that was chosen is, is provocative. It's made to look like they're doing something horrible. But what they're doing is basically, what I understand from this is that the Martyrs Foundation and other institutions that are close to Hezbollah or affiliated with Hezbollah have bank accounts there and through these bank accounts or have a program with these banks where they distribute money to the families of their martyrs, which all political parties and militias do, right? They give money to the families uh, of men who die in the battlefield. Uh, right. But when you put the, it in terms of The United of like, States government so, does the same thing for its course. soldiers. Yeah. Yeah. So who knows? Maybe something more will come out of this later on. But as of right now, it just looks like the U.S. is beating up on the little guy. Oh, and, and 
it's rumored, by the way, that the bank is led by somebody who's pro, pro-American, pro pro-March 14th. So I, I, I'm at sort of at a loss. And a lot of people that I know are at a loss of what, what the U.S. government uh, is doing right now. Yeah, I mean, I hope some investigative journalists will will look into this so that we can, you know, just more know about it because it seems a bit weird. And 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 speaking of Hezbollah, the the most important thing that happened probably when we were gone that everybody was talking about was what happened on the border <laughs> and what's been going on in general uh, between Hezbollah and Israel over the past uh, few weeks. Basically, what Israel has been doing mostly, right? And then into, and then what Hezbollah, how Hezbollah responded to it, because the Israeli government uh, led by by Benjamin Netanyahu. And by the way, when I whenever I just a side note, whenever I, I see this name BB on like any headline, I feel like it's such a cute thing, a cute word to use for like any fascist hawkish right-wing figure who's like killing people and occupying and annexing, annexing land etc so i really i'm just infuriated by bb <laughs> <laughs> but anyway this was just a side note so what's happening is that the israeli government led by netanyahu is waging what seems to be like provocative attacks on the iranians and iran-backed militias in three countries we had an attack in syria an attack in iraq and attack in lebanon all within a few days it's a coincidence maybe that happens to be just before the elections in Israel and Netanyahu is campaigning for these elections but we'll talk about that later so what happened basically is on August 24 Israel attacks a target near Damascus in Syria uh, which is it seems to be a warehouse for Iranian forces and Hezbollah but it's not really clear what what kind of facility it is but for once the Israelis claimed the attack and Netanyahu talked about it as a major operation and said they were uh, they, it was a preemptive attack that successfully thwarted an imminent Iranian killer drone attack on Israel so the attacks were airstrike that targeted uh, this Iranian target and they killed two people from Hezbollah but the Israelis are saying that Iran was basically using this space as launch pad for the dr- for its own drones to go and attack Israel uh, and that it belonged to the Quds force which is led by General Qasem Soleimani anyway they're saying basically that Iran wanted to, to attack Israel with these drones from Syria which to me doesn't make sense at all it's basically just one of the many 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 maybe hundreds now of, of, of Israeli attacks on, on Syria that are usually not claimed and not announced to prevent Iranians from advancing or from passing weapons to its allies in terms of Hezbollah or other militias. So the two Hezbollah members who were killed are Hassan Zbib and Yasser Daher, and the names are important, uh, and we'll say why in a second. But what is important is that it was uh, maybe the most ma- like the biggest attack since uh, the strike that killed Jihad Mughniyi, who was the son of a major Hezbollah figure, uh, Ahmad Mughniyi, back in 2015 who was also in a convoy with other uh, Iran Revolutionary Guard uh, f- uh, officials. But it's, it's, it's definitely like a, a very aggressive thing. And this is why I think Israel had to talk about it with all of this confidence, etc. Because it's clearly a war move, like a, a big move, rather than just something to, you know, yeah. to get rid of a specific vehicle or whatever. On August 25, the next day, uh, before dawn, at like 2 or 3 a.m., Two drones were spotted in the Ma'awad area in Dahi, so Beirut's southern suburb, where basically Hezbollah has its support and has many offices openly and secretly, like it's it's one of its main areas. And uh, so one of the drones exploded near a building 
and the other one crashed without uh, exploding. Uh, but the one that exploded caused serious damage to the building. And the building had uh, Hezbollah's media center. Which is separate from Al-Manar. This is the, the party's media center itself. Yeah, exactly. Israel did not claim responsibility and, um, you know, they did not officially comment, but some people said that it was, no, it was Iranian drones or whatever. Some British and Israeli media reports said the attack attack was targeting a facility that upgraded rockets for, to, to precision missiles. That it was some Iran-backed like facility, you know, that Iran gave to Hezbollah so that it it can develop precision missiles. But they were not they were not even sourced. I mean, they were not very serious. But yeah. Israeli media was very very excited about them, and like they have analysis with taking this uh, as self-evident or whatever. Nasrallah denied this in the speech, so he made the speech just after this happened. Uh, he blamed Israel for violating the rules of engagement. This is very important because the rules of engagement between Hezbollah and Israel since 2006 and the uh, resolution uh, 1701 of the Security Council has been more or less that the only area where the, we can legitimately legitimately fight is the Shiba farms because we think that it's Lebanese and Israel occupies it. So if Israel attacks uh, Hezbollah within the Shiba farms, then it's fine because it's within its terri- occupied territory. If Lebanon attacks or if Hezbollah attacks Israel within Shiba farms, it's fine because it's our territory. But across the blue line, we don't send rockets. We don't, you know. Right. And you especially don't attack inside the suburbs of the capital, like far, far, far away from the border. Like uh, this would be like, you know, did Hezbollah doing an attack like in some suburb of Tel Aviv or something, you know? Exactly. So it was uh, indeed a very rude, like uh, violation of these uh, rules of engagement. And Nasrallah was very clear. He's like, we will retaliate for the strike in Lebanon, for the attack, uh, the drone thing in Dahiye, and we will retaliate for uh, what happened in Syria, the strike in Syria, which killed two Hezbollah members. He didn't specify whether it will be, you know, two strikes or two retaliations or one. Um, We still don't know that. But what he said, which is very important, is that because they violated the rules of engagement, so will we, and now we can attack anywhere, from the Shiba farms to the blue line, to the sea borders, wherever we want, we can attack. And this is something that he had been hinting at before, but this was the first time he said it very clearly, which everyone understood as, okay, Hezbollah will be attacking across the blue line. Blue line. This is more or less what he said. And from Lebanon, rather than from the occupied uh, Shaba farms. Before Hezbollah actually retaliated, we had also another attack on the Iraqi side of the Syrian border. And uh, two militiamen from the popular mobilization forces, which are backed by Iran, al-Hashr uh, al-Shaabi, were killed and they blamed it on Israel. And on August 26, some mysterious drone attack as well in northeast Lebanon on the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine base in uh, the Qusayya. general command. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but we don't know a lot about that. Anyway, this, this happened on uh, August 25 and 26. And then a few days later, on September 1, Hezbollah retaliates. It fires two, ta- two anti tank missiles on uh, Avivim, near the borders. So it's an Israeli village just across the borders. I mean, now it's Israeli uh, citizens. And Hezbollah announced it was carried out by a group named after Hassan Zbib and Yasser Daher, who, killed, who were killed in Syria one week earlier. So this means that it's a retaliation against f- for the for the operation in Syria, yeah, which I mean, is what Hezbollah does. There's potentially another retaliation coming. Either that or 
nothing because we don't know if there is uh, i mean if 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 this was kind of for both or for one of them so far it seems that hezbollah is keeping it a bit mysterious but it seems as well that they're not seeking escalations anyway we'll talk we can discuss it later but what happened is basically they fired these two anti-tank missiles they said that they hit a vehicle a military vehicle killing and wounding everyone who's inside but we'll get to the killing and wounding in a second but anyway what happened is that israel retaliated without very aggressive bombing but they threw like 100 artillery shells uh, mostly phosphorus bombs to create a smoke screen on the border yeah i think this, this is a point that needs to be clarified a bit you know i i was watching this on tv as many people were you know like live footage on al mayadeen and al manar and it seems as though the the vast majority of what israel what you know there were you know sort of like breathless accounts of like oh israel is now shelling uh the lebanese side of the border and everything yeah but it, it was white phosphorus uh it, it seemed at least from what we could see most of this was white phosphorus which is not something that you like shoot at people to kill people <laughs> at least in most cases it, its uh purpose is uh, it's an incendiary. It, it's, it creates a bunch of smoke, sets things on fire, that sort of a thing, so that you know people can't see what you're doing. It creates a smoke screen, that sort of a thing. Um, and so it, it seems as though like maybe there were some you know actual like killing munitions that were also fired uh, by Israel in response, but we don't know how many of those, or if, it doesn't seem as though there were there were a whole lot of those. If if there were, yeah, it was also also like it seemed like. Israel was kind of expecting something to happen and then but they had the same response for whatever that would be well I mean they were on high alert you know like they they knew something was coming so so as you said it caused some fields to burn but no casualties no injuries reported on the Lebanese side on the other side uh, the Israelis living in four kilometers or closer to the borders were evacuated and including Israeli barracks and military posts like every military person was evacuated and it's it's there's something that's really i mean to be honest it's hilarious there's an rt like russia today arabic uh, reporter who went to the israeli barracks in that area and she was just she went in it was not even closed like the gate there was not even one soldier to tell her not to come in she was going through on the all of these rooms and like the personal stuff of some soldiers and like uh, some ammunition that was left or whatever and there was absolutely no one in the whole area to tell her that, you know, to, to kind of prevent her from going in the barracks and showing everything, uh, which which was a bit weird. I didn't expect it to be this much of an evacuation. Not even one soldier left. And then she said that uh, the army told her, the Israeli army told her that uh, they could not send a military kind of uh, vehicle or a military personnel to accompany kind of the journey or whatever because anyone who's wearing a military uniform will be a target for Hezbollah. So it was a very serious kind of uh, situation yeah. of uh, yeah. high alert. alert. And, I, and I imagine whichever Israeli commander was responsible for that evacuation and nobody being at that base is probably finding another job. Yeah. And about the death and kills, I mean, it, it was very confusing for the first couple of hours whether actually someone died or not because Hezbollah usually doesn't like send out these reports without having any kind of confirmation. But we can't find anything to confirm what Hezbollah said, uh, which is that some soldiers died. Hezbollah said there was a video and media said that there was a video that showed, you know, some evacuation or a rescue um, maneuver. But uh, Israeli uh, officials 
said that no it's uh, it was a fake maneuver to kind of to pretend that we are you know rescuing people because to to kind of give Hezbollah the message that they were successfully targeted a vehicle with personnel or whatever while they actually missed their targets it's it's a mess of, of obviously you can't believe any of the two sides in a situation like this because they want don't both want to make a certain point but if there was a death then it would have been confirmed in my opinion yeah it, and israel is a very small country it's it, people talk you know it, it's hard if, if there were serious injuries if there were definitely a death like that would be very very hard to keep under wraps especially when you have an election coming up you know next week like that's that that's just something that's very very difficult to do in a small country where a lot of people know a lot of people yeah but anyway what matters is that it didn't escalate into a war which a lot of people were worried about because it seems like nobody really wants a war yeah yeah at, at least not yet yeah exactly yeah I, I think like right now especially for from like the israeli point of view if if we're to look at that you know they've got an election on september 17th that's next tuesday getting into like a, a a major confrontation right now would probably not be a great idea it would be very 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 risky for netanyahu in particular to to do that you know People who are evacuated from their homes don't make for happy voters. Yeah, at the same time, like putting some, like security and the war against Hezbollah and Iran at the center of the election is good for Netanyahu because he is right, a very the limited most thing where you show and and you know like for, for the the story that Netanyahu is sort of spinning is that like oh we we hit all these targets they missed us and we also on top of that were able to fool them with this operation you know whether or not that's true or not that's the line that you know they can go with you know a lot of people will believe there and will be and will serve them in. Uh, in the election, right? Uh, but yeah, as far as a larger thing goes, definitely not before the elections. The question is what happens after the elections from the Israeli point of view. And to get into that, you know, it, that's that's a whole thing that I, you know, I, I don't know Israeli politics. So I don't know what their calculation is. I mean, certainly they want, they seem to be taking like a much more muscular stance against Iran uh, in the region. And that entails a more muscular stance against Hezbollah. How far they're willing to go, though, is another question. I'm sure there is uh, consideration uh, amongst uh, some people that, uh, you know, having Donald Trump in the White House means that they probably have a little freer hand in whatever they do as far as, you know, just having reflexive American support. Uh, which, which they're already benefiting from, right? I mean, the, the, the behavior in Syria and now in Lebanon and Iraq, but mostly in Syria, has yeah. been really supported. It makes sense if there's a very supportive White House. Otherwise, it's like... Right. How can you just like, you know, do all of yeah. these airstrikes in another sovereign country? It's just, it seems a bit ridiculous. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and to be clear, like the Americans, I mean, they're already, you know, re reflexively supportive of Israel historically. Uh, but Donald Trump has taken that to an e even higher level, right? Mm. And that's sort of complicating for another reason in that Donald Trump may not be in the White House for forever. And Usually, if you look at the history of Israeli action in Lebanon, like they, they tend to like to, you know, invade in the summertime. Well, summer is coming to an end. And if they wait until next summer, then Donald Trump is going to be in the middle of a re-election campaign. And maybe it's a good thing to have a war during an American uh, election. And maybe it's a very bad thing. It's a very risky thing mm. for, for sure. So if you're going to do something, if you're going to take 
some sort of measures to sort of like knock Hezbollah down, mow the grass, as some people horrifyingly call it, then, you, you know, you, you don't have a whole lot of time necessarily unless you're willing to risk doing this in an election year in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate your analysis, but I can't hold back like from like noticing that it's just like a summer activity. You know, what are we doing this summer? Let's invade Lebanon, kill some Arabs. <laughs> right, <you> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, I wouldn't say, apart from the Israeli side, it's also the Iranian side and Hezbollah side that I think doesn't want a full war now. I mean, Iran is uh, still, I think it's buying time to see whether Trump will be reelected or not, to see how this whole nuclear um, agreement thing will happen but in general it's trying to maintain a good relationship with uh, with the internet whatever it's called the international community or the west basically uh, europe meanwhile while it's buying time with the u.s because there's no hope of actual constructive discussions with trump so iran doesn't want a full war now if it can prevent because they're already suffering with the sanctions and hezbollah and when it comes to actual war decisions it's dependent on iran so However, we th- whatever we think of Hezbollah and whatever we think the margin of freedom that they have for action is, it doesn't matter. Uh, when it comes to actually funding a war, you need your main sponsor's agreement. Always, Absolutely. Right? Yeah. But also when you look on the, the domestic level in terms of domestic politics, Hezbollah being the, the side to cause a war that would 100% lead to the collapse of the Lebanese economy is something that I don't think Nasrallah takes lightly. Like, I mean... This would be devastating for Hezbollah politically. Absolutely. So it seems that none of the concerned sides really is interested or should be theoretically, according to our analysis, interested in a war. So, you know, to our listeners, don't be really worried about this yet, but maybe next summer. <laughs> well, well, I mean, yeah, we'll, we'll see. Yeah. And, and, and this goes with the, like the more general thing, the, the post-2006 uh, thing where Hezbollah, for, for its part, for sure, has tried to communicate much much more to try to prevent a war say like oh no we have these capabilities it's going to be very risky for both sides very catastrophic for both sides if we go forward and so this sort of like deterrence rhetoric it it it, it seems as though there there has been uh you know it, it's worked in a certain way this this idea that well we can we can create a little bit of deterrence and that's sort of like the larger framework even if the rules of engagement have shifted a bit with this with the drones and all that stuff at at the same time that underlying logic of deterrence hopefully still holds up well i think that's a good note to end this episode on uh, we'll be back next week with another episode. Until then, I'm Nizar Hassan. I'm Benjamin Red, And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.